The scripture this morning is from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no place, no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Cindy, how about them warriors? Wow. Wow. I do know, I do know we have a few, and maybe more than a few based on that response of Rockets fans here. And you are welcome. The gospel is we love our enemies. So you are welcome. We are excited that you are here. Um, no, it's, it's been fun. I actually have a good friend who's, who's a, an avid Rockets fan. and It's a good series, huh? So we're going to keep watching that. Uh, we have a little bit more life in us, at least one more game. Um, welcome to Current. We're glad you guys are here. Uh, we're so so thankful that, that you're here with us. Next week is going to be fun. Uh, Cindy did say we're going to be running around. There will be some people walking. That will be me. Uh, so you'll, you, for those of you guys who are walkers, uh, not, not so much competitive. Uh, it's also a great chance to bring out the little ones. I mean, we'll have our little ones walk around with us. And, and, and to highlight what Cindy just said, it's a wonderful oppor- opportunity to be in the community, having conversations as we are out there understanding and being there and making ourselves available. So I'd encourage you guys to come on out uh, if, if you can. And then, of course, the food part is, is amazing. Um, well, at the very end there that, of what Cindy read, the scripture, uh, the, the, the people of Israelite, te, uh, Israelites uh, tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's the question of our series. Uh, that's how they worded it, how we're wording it is, how, uh, uh, where is God in this? So for this two-part series, we started last week, kicked it off, and then today we're going to kind of conclude it, and then after the block party, we'll start a new series. We're asking the question, where is God in this? I've had a number of conversations with plenty of you, know, and know that in this room, there are a number of us who are asking this question, or have asked this question in the recent past, God, where are you at in my career? Why isn't my job not lining up the way I would think it would? Where are you at in my relationships? Where is that person or, or, or that group of people that, that I feel like life would just be so much better? It's just, it's, it's, it's not the same until, not, not, not where I'd like it to be until then. Like, where, God, where are you at in this? Last week, we asked the question more specifically, why isn't he providing? God, why aren't you providing? This week, we're going to ask the question more specifically, God, why is this so hard? Now, I'm sure this is a question everyone has asked. Even if you don't identify as Christian, I imagine you've asked this question at some point. God, even if you, know, if you even exist, why is this so hard? Or maybe it's been more of a conclusion for you. God can't exist because life is so hard for me, for those in my life. Um, and if you do identify as a, as a Christian, um, you've asked this question. Maybe you're asking it right now. God, why is this so hard? 
And if you have asked this question, uh, you're in really good company because this is a question that people were asking. The very earliest men and women of faith were asking, is, is God really among us or not? God, where are you at in this? Why is this so hard? And so with stories like the one we're going to look at today, we can learn from the earliest men and women of faith and how they wrestled through with this question. And more importantly, how God interacted with them through it. So what we're going to see today is not only getting our minds around a little bit of the why life can be so hard, but helping equip us. This, this text will help equip us to thrive even when life is hard. So let me say a prayer and then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll dig in. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you that we can uh, depend on you even when uh, life is hard, especially when life's hard. Father, if there are, or if there are folks here today uh, where life is really hard for them, would you give them especially your, 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 uh, a sense of your spirit? Would you give us each your spirit as we long to learn from you and your word? Give me your, your, your spirit as I, as I try to teach these things. I ask in Jesus' name. Well, last week, we looked at the story of Abraham. If you were here, uh, we were in Genesis 15. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It literally means beginnings or origin. It's the, it's, the, it's the beginning of all things. And early on in that first book of the Bible, God calls a people unto himself. So he, he meets with, he chooses out Abraham and through him a people where essentially the promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he says, I will make you guys into a great nation and through you, I will not only bless you, I will bless others through you. So that was Genesis 15. Uh, What I'm going to do today is kind of take up the DVR remote and fast forward a little bit in the story. We're going to move from Genesis to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, middle part of the Bible. God has delivered God's people out of slavery. They had been subject to slavery in Egypt for about 400 years. So God had delivered them, and now they're wandering through the desert. They're wandering through the wilderness, and and it's at this point in the story, Exodus 17, they're freaking out because they have no water. Have you ever had a time in your life where you were without water for an extended period? I remember I had some family friends uh, take me and my brother uh, when I was about eight years old. Peter was about four out for a hike in like kind of the deserty area of San Diego. San Diego is all deserty. But like it was like the especially deserty part. After church, I think looking back, they were taking us out on this hike so that my parents could have an afternoon to themselves, that sort of thing. Well, I was in dress clothes. Before dress clothes was like, you know, getting to show up with these shirts and all that. So, you know, but no, I was, it was really, really hot. Summer day in San Diego. I hadn't had much to drink at church, let alone they picked me up and went. Uh, they didn't have kids in themselves, so I don't think that was really thought about. We went out. I didn't have any water. We're out there walking in, in the desert area, and boy, I was not enjoying life. At that age, hikes were like torture, like, and let alone. But anyways, so we, we get out there, and we're out there for a couple, a couple hours, and I'm already thirsty. We didn't have any drink or any sort of that, and then we get lost. Now, this is before the day and age of cell phones, okay, and GPS and all that sort of thing. My son just asked me, six years old yesterday, for a phone. I'm like, you're in kindergarten. Starting at kindergarten? Like, I didn't get one until college. Anyways, there's no GPS. We're out there. We're lost. I'm already thirsty. It's one of those moments where when you're as a kid, you're, you're like not having fun. You're freaking out. But then you see adults start to get scared, and you're like, okay, things are getting scary here. We're out there for a long time. I was already thirsty. Long story short, by the time we finally get back, I am so thirsty. Like When I was a kid, water was punishment. Like, I didn't like drinking just a glass of water. It's funny. I just, maybe I'm weird like that. I didn't want to just drink water. I wanted Sunny D. I wanted, like, some sort of drink like that. That day, I am not, I, the only thing I wanted to drink, not Gatorade, not nothing, I needed water. 
And not just like, a, hey, it'd be nice to have water. Like my body physically was like demanding water. Have you ever been there? Um, I'm actually somewhat thankful for that experience. It kind of sobers me up when I hear about things around the world where people are desperate for water. Like I had a small small taste of that, and let alone like what people are... The Israelites were, not just a couple of them, a whole people were without water in the middle of the desert, looking at desert, and they're freaking out. You know what? At least on the surface of it, rightly so. But check this out. I want you to look at, look at this. Look at verse 1. Um, it says, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert traveling to place, from place to place as the Lord commanded. You following that? So they're out in the desert. They're in this place where they're freaking out about water, and it's because the Lord led them there. I remember uh, when I was uh, first reading through the Bible back when I was like, I don't know, in my teenage years, I came to the stories that are pretty famous. If you've, if you've read through the stories of Jesus, you probably know the stories of when his disciples, his students go out on the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and the winds pick up and the waves pick up, and they're freaking out because of all that sort of stuff, and they are professional fishermen, a lot of them. And so if they're crying out, which they do in those accounts, we're going to die, they're probably going to die. Like, they, they have the professional mind and experience to know that. And, of course, in that situation, Jesus is actually sleeping. He wakes up. He's like, guys, chillax. I got this. He, he takes care of them. But you know what was crazy is when I was reading through that, if you rewind in the text a little bit and you look at it, it says, before they head out to the sea, Jesus says, hey, why don't we go out to the, why don't we go to the other side? And I'm like, I remember reading that and just having the thought, dang. Not only were they, like, in the middle of the storm, Jesus out there, but they were led into the storm by Jesus. Here the Israelites are having this really scary situation, and it's precisely because the Lord led them into it. Um, first thought is we're asking the question, God, where are you at in this? Why is this so hard? First thought is there is no promise in the Bible that life will be easy. It's just not there. Uh, if you think that the Bible teaches that, you know, follow Jesus, follow God, and you and life will get more comfortable, it'll get more convenient, uh, you're reading a Bible that I don't. Uh, yeah, I haven't read. It's just actually, in fact, Jesus, uh, a couple times, different ways, he says to his disciples, his students, actually, if you follow me, things are going to get a little less comfortable, a little bit more inconvenient. Uh, it's just not there. So the question then becomes, of course, why would God deliberately lead them into hardship? Why would he allow us to go through hard things today? Now, this text doesn't give us the complete, you know, wrap it up in a bow answer to that that big question, but it is extremely helpful. Uh, again, if you look at verse 1, when it says that they were traveling from place to place, that's language that the author of Exodus is using to help us remember that this is in the time when the people were wandering in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is, a, is an incredibly helpful metaphor, a real life to these Israelites, um, but metaphor looking back that the Bible will often use to explain some big concepts that are otherwise harder for us to understand. For example, the word salvation. We might use the word salvation and nobody knows what people are talking about. But when the Bible uses salvation, it'll use this metaphor of the wilderness to help us understand. Oh, salvation is liberation. Salvation is being freed from slavery and bondage. So in much, the way, in much the same way that the Israelites were liberated from the Egyptians and that slavery, so in Christ we are liberated, salvation is we are liberated from the, the bondage, from the slavery of sin 
and death. That sort of thing. But here's what's also interesting about salvation as understood in the wilderness. Salvation has two aspects to it. On the one hand, there is a decisive aspect to it. There's a momentarily, there's a moment that, that, that comes with liberation right then and there. Just like the Israelites were freed right then and there from the Egyptians, they were freed, right? You know, we are freed in Christ if we believe in him, what he's done for us. We are freed right then and there. There's a decisive aspect of it to that salvation. And yet there's also, it shows us these wanderings, uh, process aspect to salvation. Um, just like the person can be freed from slavery in a moment, so the person can't be freed of that slavery except through a process. There's a process aspect to it, which means, what is this, all this saying? Is just as the children of Israel did not, did not go immediately from Egypt into the promised land, but went through a period of wilderness wandering, in the same way the freedom we have in principle doesn't really get worked out into our lives, in actuality, in practice, in our character, until and unless we go through wilderness sorts of experiences as well disappointment, difficulties, troubles, times of hardship. In fact, it's often when the Bible is looking back on these times when the Israelites look back, when, when they look back at these times that the Israelites spent in the wilderness, in these hardships, it's often seen as, oh my goodness, those were the formative years. Those were the years we became the people that God wanted us to be, precisely because it was hard. God's hand, they got to see clearly that God's hand was at work. Here's another way of thinking about it. It's in the desert that all, everything in our life is stripped away. I mean, if you think about it in this way, everything in the desert can't last. I mean, even the most basic of life sustenances, water, food, can't be relied upon. But what we see here is God is showing the Israelites and through them showing us that he can be relied upon. In fact, he is the only one that we can rely on. Uh, I think it's interesting. You know, oftentimes things are great when life is great, right? And we, we operate or, 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 or we never contemplate the fact that those things, life and the things that we rely upon on a day-in, day-out day basis can't really be relied upon in the end of the day. They will all be stripped away at some point. They will all be taken. The desert, it, 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 they, they cannot last as long as, you know, that relationship is going well. Or as long as my career is good, then I'm good. I have the joy that I need, everything's set. As long as I'm on my way towards that, I don't know, white picket fence, you know, thought. It's not a standalone American, you know, standalone home in our American dream in Silicon Valley. It's a townhome. You know, as long as I'm on my path towards that, I've literally lived in a townhome with a white picket fence. The white picket fence was, was plastic. This, I, I, just, I had a moment when I saw that. But anyways, as long as we're on our way towards that, things are lining up towards that, then everything's fine. Everything's good. But the minute that doesn't happen, boy, watch out. And what God is showing us is those, any, anything in this life can't ultimately be relied upon, but, but he can be replied, relied upon, especially when uh, times are hard. That's what God is showing. Listen to how one writer put it. Sorry, this won't be on the, the screen there for you. The reason it's possible out of hardship to come happier people and out of temptation to come stronger people and out of failure to come humbler, wiser, and therefore more effective people is because in the desert you can find the water of God. Frankly, only in the desert can you find the water of God. Um, I think the goal, if we understand clearly what God, who God is and who he is to us, the goal is like King David wrote in one of his psalms, which, 
By the way, we're going to be going through the Psalms this summer. Psalms are basically songs of poetry. King David wrote a bunch of them. But in, in Psalm 63, we're actually told he wrote this in the desert of Judah, which is interesting. He said, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I, th- I thirst for you. My whole body longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. That is who God is. That is what he deserves. Even when things are hard or when, we think, when things are great, but God will often use the deserts to help his people know that it's in those times that we are always dependent on him. We always need to rely upon him. Now, I think real quickly before moving on, that's a wonderful psalm to read. But if I'm real with you, when I read psalms like that, half the time I'm like, oh, yeah, cool. I'm like, David, I thirst for you, Lord, even when it's like dry and parched land. But I, the other half of me is like, oh, there's just no way. Life's just too hard. And I want to note before we move on that that was the case for David. He wrote a lot of psalms, somewhere between 70 and 100 psalms. He didn't write all the psalms, but he wrote 70 or, or to, uh, to 100 of these beautiful songs of poetry. At least a third of them were songs of lament. At least a third of them were, were songs basically, God, where are you at in this? Why aren't you providing? Why is this so hard? So I read that psalm, and it's beautiful. That's the goal. That makes sense if we understand who God is and who, his control of the situation, all that sort of thing. And yet, it is a struggle, is it not? I mean, think about the disciples, the students in the middle of the lake, freaking out, and they had Jesus in the boat with them. With them. And yet here, for the Israelites, they are obviously in the struggle, and God meets them there in the struggle, which is, which is our next thought here. Um, the promise is not that life will be easy, the promise is that he will walk with us, that he'll be with us. Um, so we, we've already seen that in verse 1, God himself is the one who led them, led these guys out into the desert. So the logical question then becomes, and they ask this in verse 3, how can you lead us out here to kill us or let us die when you, like, basically said we're going to be going to this promised land? Like, you, how, you saved us, now how come we're going to be killed on the way? It's a good logical question if they'd only come to that conclusion themselves, and that is God's not going to let that happen. Still, they question that. But that aside, to me, what's more striking is how God walks with them through this difficulty. You know what the key word it seems to me in this text is? Is the word quarreling. Did you, see, did you hear that word? It shows up three, actually four times in this text. The fourth one is when Moses basically names the place Meribah, which means quarreling. It's like, I'm just going to name this place quarreling. They're testing God. They're quarreling. Um, they come up to him. They come up to Mo- most of the time in, in the book of Exodus and the, these accounts, what they're doing is grumbling. They're complaining. That shows up in this text, verse 3 or so, somewhere in there. They're, they're grumbling, but this one is more intense. They're, they're, they're quarreling. They come up to Moses with this demanding posture. Verse 4, give us water to drink. I mean, that's, that's their posture. That's their heart. Moses calls them out on it. He says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Let me interpret what Moses is saying. Hold up. Hey, let's not fool ourselves here. You guys are, stop trying to pretend here. You're coming at me. You're quarreling. You're bringing your your heightened frustration, your anger, your bitterness, your resentment, and you're thinking that it's directed towards me, but let's be real. You're, You're directing that towards the Lord. 
What he doesn't add is, and by the way, guys, I'm following him. I don't have this figured out. But still, this, they have this quarreling posture towards Moses, but ultimately it's for God. Verse 3, after Moses kind of calls them out on it, but the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I supposed to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. You know what Moses is saying there? It's like, I'm done. I've got no I've got nothing left in the tank for these guys. I'm I'm through. I I can't. I have nothing left in the tank. And what does God do? He says, I've got some more in the tank. And he provides for them. Like, really? God provides for them in amazing ways. Here's what's happening in this this text, which I think is worth mentioning and helps us understand what's going on at at the heart of it. If If you read this in its context... The writer of Exodus is showing us something here that has been, become a bit of a pattern for the people of God, okay? Something that happens here in chapter 17 has also happened in chapter 16, has also happened in chapter 15, 14, 13, and a couple times, sometimes a couple of times in each of those chapters. What is the pattern? God provides for them in miraculous ways, spectacular ways. They come up to a trouble, and they start freaking out. God, where are you at? Why aren't you providing? Why is this hard? God provides. To another struggle, where are you at? Exodus uh, 10, 12, God sends Moses, this exceedingly gifted leader who is, who's humble to deliver them out of Egypt. They, uh, he sends, uh, through Moses, God does 10 amazing signs. Finally gets Pharaoh to relent, and Pharaoh lets the people go, for, lets them go out of slavery, and they run up into the Red Sea. If you've seen the Charles Heston movie, you know this part. Pharaoh has a change of heart. He says, I want my property back. I want my slaves back. He sends his best of his army after them. They're with their backs against the Red Sea. They're freaking out. God, why did you deliver us only to have us killed at the Red Sea? What are you doing? What does God do? He says, guys, relax. Moses, stick up your side. You know, and he parts the Red Sea through Moses. They get to the other side, praises. There's this whole song. Most of chapter 15 is, is a song of praise. The last The latter part of chapter 15 moves to them moving into the wilderness and not having water and freaking out. Sound familiar? They come to some waters, but it's too bitter. It's undrinkable. They can't do anything. God, why did you bring us out here? What does God do? He shows up. He provides and makes that water drinkable. Oh, wonderful. Next chapter, they move over here. They don't have food. They're freaking out. God, where are you at in this? Why is this so hard? God gives them food. We come to chapter 17. There's no water. They're freaking out. God, where are you at in this? You, you, get, you get in the pattern. So clearly, this is, you know, months of history kind of condensed into a couple chapters of text. But if you, could, if you read this in one sitting, which you could easily do, easily do, if you do that, we see abundantly clear that the writer of Exodus is trying to make us ask the question, these guys are, aren't these guys idiots? I remember reading the first time through, again, I was reading through this text, and I'm just like, these guys are morons. Like, come on. It's like God's provided for them. They, they, they stress out. God provides for them. They stress out. I'm like, these guys are morons. And then I lived a little bit of life myself. I lived a little bit of life. You know, at that age, you know, then a girl wasn't as into me as I would like to have ever been. 
And then my arm blew out. And my whole life uh, uh, that was surrounded baseball and going to college and playing baseball, that, that was out the window. And then I experienced some loss in some areas of my life, uh, the people in my life that I just, it, was, it wasn't expected. And uh, a lot of people were, were using the word unfair. And I lived a little bit of life, and I was like, my goodness. Even at, a, at, a, at that young age, when I read through the, the Bible, I, I, I knew and I understood God's kindnesses to me in a way that I just couldn't deny. I mean, even just the gift of life. But in the small ways and the big ways, how God had provided for me, taken care of me. And yet, in those moments of hardship, it was as if that thought, that perspective was buried in the sand. And what was my heart? Grumbling. Quarrelsome. Blaming circumstances, blaming people, but no, at the end of the day, no, I was, I was blaming God. Um, what we see here is, is that pattern, and what the writer of, of, of Exodus is showing is, is that's us. I no longer can read Exodus and, and ask the question, these, uh, how, the, or, or have the thought, these guys are idiots. I can't, because, oh, okay, I can, and I, I have to claim that for myself. I'm an idiot. Um, because we can so quickly move to grumbling and quarreling. God, where are you at this? Why is this so hard? I can know that there's, there's no promise that life will be easy, uh, that he uses hard circumstances to build me up, to form me into the person that he wants me to be, even to mold me into a person that is more effectively able to help others, builds empathy, builds character, humility, all those. I can understand all that. I can agree with that. But when the, when it, when the chips come down... Uh, I have a real hard time working it through. I live from the perspective of God, this stinks. Where are you at? Why, why is this so hard? When the truth is, I have no leg to stand on. Not, not only has God provided for me in ways that I just I can't enumerate, but also he's God. Um, he's been exceedingly good to me. My favorite part about this text, my favorite part about this text is when after Moses says in verse 4, God uh, God, I'm done with these people. I can't do anymore. Jesus, uh, God says in response to Moses, well, I'm not. What we see here is God is exceedingly patient with us. God is exceedingly patient. Actually, the old English word is God is long-suffering with us, which is such a, it's a really helpful word because that helps us understand a little bit better the actual biblical uh, definition of patience, of God's patience for us. Because patience from God is not just a bare tolerance. He doesn't just say, well, we're just going to put up with it. Uh, what long-suffering means is to take people whom you disdain, whom you uh, should disdain people whom you should reject and go and serve them and meet their needs. Uh, here's another way of saying this. When, when everybody else's patience ran dry, God's did not. Um, you and I would be much more prepared in the wilderness. You and I would be so much more confident and relaxed and at peace in the problems that we face in life if we could just get the big picture perspective on God's never waning patience with us. It seems to me when you take this story into account and what the Exodus writer is doing here and, and in these chapters, I think, I think what he's saying is we've got to have a bird's eye view approach. A bird's eye view. You guys ever go to those like uh, theme parks and they'll have those human mazes? You guys ever do those hum human mazes? You kinda, I hate those things, by the way. When I go through those, I, I just get frustrated. But every once in a while, if you ever see this, it's really cool to do this. There'll be a platform above the maze. There'll be like a little perch. and You get to like kind of watch other folks 
commit to this torture. You know, you just, you just kind of watch, and it's really comical, because a lot of times these, these folks will start out having a good time, because why would they enter it otherwise? They start having a good time, but invariably, especially if you're close enough to listen, they'll say something like, oh, it's not so much fun anymore. Where's the exit? Like, you know, and they start to jump and try to cheat. And what are you doing from your perch? You look down, you're like, oh my goodness, they're okay. Everything's fine. They're going to be okay, and all that sort of thing. Uh, it seems to me in the same way, if you're a follower of Christ, you can see with the bird's eye view that God gives you. For instance, we can read passages like the one that we're reading today and see, oh my goodness, these people of God are freaking out, and God's got them. I mean, you're reading this text, and you're like, man, I wish I'd have been there so I could have had the faith. And then you've experienced life, you're like, boy, I wouldn't have been there. But I wouldn't have had that faith, but I wish I could. We could see that God has them in our hands. You could read the, the story of Jesus and his disciples, his students, in the, in the middle of the, the Sea of Galilee, and they're freaking out. They're like, dude, you guys have Jesus in the boat. You got him in the boat. And then you realize, oh my goodness, spiritually speaking, Jesus is in the boat with us. Even as sometimes he leads us into the storm or out into the desert, he does it for the sake of building us up and for effectively molding us into people that can more love and serve others. Still, you may say, David, this is all nice. It's helpful. It's inspirational. Sure, I can have help and, you know, have this sort of perspective in the small things in life, the, the hard things that are, like, smaller, but the big things, I'm not so sure. The really hard things in life, I'm not so sure. I, I'm not sure that that hope's possible, that, there's, that, that I can trust these sorts of things, but the rest of the text is here to show us that you absolutely can trust God in any situation, any situation, any situation. Uh, in verse 4, Moses says, they're going to stone me, which that's not fun. Um, but what are they doing? In their quarreling, they're calling, they're calling out for justice. They are demanding an account. They want Moses' head on a platter because they're like, this is not right. We demand an account. And for his part, God responds on those terms. Do you notice? Did you notice that when Cindy read this? Verse 5, God said to Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. God, through Moses, is calling a formal meeting. God, through Moses, is calling a trial. Uh, you know, he's wanting Moses to go out there formally in front of the people, bring the formal leaders. The staff here is significant. The staff back then was an instrument of justice. Think like modern-day judges gavel. He's taking out this, this instrument of justice. Verse 6, God says, I will stand before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders. And what is this all about? Like what's, what's going on here? Um, the Israelites have been quarreling against God, putting him to the test, asking God, are you really among us, demanding us? And they've asked this frightfully audacious question. Okay, God is, nevertheless, never mind that God has provided for them in ways like, it's just, we've, we went through that in a short period of time, just an amazing, spectacular. Never mind that. He's God. And yet they're still like, cool, you know, we should... We should go back to Egypt. You don't know what you're doing. All that sort of like, so They're asking this really audacious question if we really wrestle with it, what it means. But then God, through Moses, starts calling this formal meeting, this trial. 
And I don't know about you, but if I were in their shoes, I would have been freaking out at this point. I was freaking out about the water before. I've been really freaking out about this. Uh-oh. God's calling a meeting. God's calling a meeting. You, we've been demanding justice. I'm not so sure I want justice anymore. Okay? God's calling this meeting. And in this, in this moment where they're testing him, is God really among us? God does something so much more beautiful and so much greater than what looks like on the surface, and that is just giving them water, which by itself is miraculous. He's meeting their greatest need. Uh, one of the verses that I didn't notice on my own, like when I was studying through this, I had to read into it, kind of get some like uh, biblical scholarly uh, perspective on it, was verse 6. It says, God stood there before Moses and the people. Biblical scholars flip out about that verse. They're like, this is insane. Okay? Not only in the Hebrew scriptures of the Bible, but when you look across, this, this just doesn't happen. God does not stand before people, is their point. People stand before God, if, if at all. But God does not stand before peop, people, and yet God put himself before this people and commanded the rod of justice to strike. Um, something far greater was happening that day than water just coming from the rock. This was pointing ahead to the gospel and Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, Paul, one of the early church writers, saw this in the events of what had happened. In writing 1 Corinthians 10, looking back on this event, said, Our forefathers all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. The rod of justice, so that the provision could come, struck Jesus. That is the point. And not so that water would just physically flow that day, but the spiritual water that is so much greater our need would be met. That way Jesus could say, John 7, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Um, there's a reason why Jesus on the cross cried out, I thirst. The cross, in a way, was God sending Jesus out into the wilderness to be stricken. Isaiah 53, surely he will take up our pain, 700 years before Christ, this is written, and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But on the cross, Jesus was cast out into the wilderness. He had the great spiritual thirst that we all long for, for the sake of giving us something to drink, giving us a spiritual life, in him. That's what the cross is all about. He went into the wilderness so that any wilderness that we feel is actually not a wilderness at all. That even the wildernesses that we face or we feel or we're crying out, God, where are you at in this? We know he has provided for us because he's already met our greatest need, and that has dealt with our quarreling attitude. Us saying, God, why, where are you at in this? Why are you, when he is just exceedingly good and kind to us, he is now actually using hardship for not only our good, but for the good of others. Uh, there was a, a time when Cindy and I were going through a really hard time. And I'm talking real raw tears, that sort of thing. And a mentor of ours was kind of there, and we we're working it through with, with, this, with this guy, a pastor of a number of years. And we just got it all out, just kind of vented, you know, tears and all that sort of ugly mess. And he looked at us and he said, guys, yeah, that's hard. But I'm excited for you. And I was like, What? He went on to say, you know, I've been a pastor for, I don't, he's been many decades. He said, when I was early on in my ministry, the hard stuff, working through hard stuff, it used to stress me. I hated it. I now like it. 
He's like, I know it sounds really weird. I don't mean it as a weird, like, I like hard things for the sake of hard things. I like it because those are the times when we become more like Christ. Our hearts begin to actually change when we realize that a reliance is upon him, and he can be trusted. And he said to us, he said, yeah, I'm excited for you guys because this is how it works for people, for couples. He's like, when I look at folks who are killing it out there, loving others, serving for others, there's never one without a story of hardship that God brought them through. I thought about that. Is hardship hard? It stinks. It stinks. But God meets us there and walks with us through it and has taken the only hardship that could have messed us up, taken us out. That's what the cross is all about. He took care of the only wilderness that matters. He has taken care of the only thirst that we actually have, that when we come to him, as the scriptures teach, Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures teach, from within them will flow rivers of water. Friends, that's, that's the gospel. That's the good news. If you are in a hard place right now, God loves you. He sees you. He wants to enter that with you. Even if you're kind of throwing fists at him, he just wants to take you in his arms, hold you. If that's you today, you can come up and we'll pray for you. I'll, I'll be up here. Um, but let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness, your goodness. That even when we have a hard time getting our heads around things, and we might say things that just don't make sense or are quarrelsome towards you, and really we have no business being quarrel, quarrelsome with you, the author of life, the provider of so many wonderful things, including, and most wonderfully, giving your son to go into the wilderness to be cast off and stricken by the rod of justice, that we might have drink of the life of Jesus and be restored with you. Father, we thank you. For those who are going through hard times right now, would you minister to them? Uh, this is not some academic thing, black and white thing for us, as you know. Um, so would you give them your spirit? Would you touch them? Would you minister to them? Father, would you help us be a church family that is here for folks when it's hard? We celebrate you and we sing your praises even uh, now as we, as we continue in song. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.